Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to J.R. Rivers about the history of Linux hardware switching and routing. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, good evening, J.R. Well, it's afternoon for you, right? Because you're in San Jose. I am. Well, someplace around San Jose, one of those sands. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> actually, of- I'm in Mountain View, which is a lot, like, way better than oh. any of the sands. <laughs> it's, it's like a different. sand, but different. It's yeah, yeah exactly. it's like a sand, but different. That's cool. Well, yeah, That's it's cool. better. Yeah, like we have real bars and real restaurants and <laughs> <laughs> and guitars. Yeah, lots of guitars. guitars lots of guitars. Yeah, lots of guitars. Donald doesn't have his guitar tonight. He's back to frogs. Not tonight. Oh, no. That's <laughs> cool. So, JR, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you got into networking, where you, I mean, just just not very deep or anything, just so we have a sense of, like, what we're talking about, which is Linux hardware switching and routing. Yeah, so um, I run pretty deep, you know, old school Apple Talk Networks at one of my companies uh, that I got into out of college, uh, my second job, actually. You know, we decided to network all our printers and someone had to run the Apple Talk network. And so I was running this, you know, the cat three all over the, the building and plugging in all the computers and trying to figure out how the stuff didn't ever work quite right. Uh, um, and then uh, really kind of fell off the deep end at 3Com. I uh, got into, started off in the Nick business there. Um, and that was that was kind of absolute trial by fire. I had I sh- showed up my first day at work. And my boss, um, real cocky guy named David Schwartz, really, really great guy from, from New York. And he's like a show me the money kind of guy. And he grabs me, takes me down. He says, guess what? We just released uh, a new ASIC and PC board for the R- IBM RS6000 and nothing works right. Uh, you're going into the bone pile and helping everybody recover these boards. So my first week at 3Com, I'm look, like, you're looking at these boards, trying to figure out what's wrong with them, why they don't work right, you know, what are the patterns, you're looking at the schematics, you don't even know how it's supposed to work for God's sake, right, and then unwinding it all. But, you know, it's kind of a, a great way to figure out not only the, um, how to say it right, the, the architectural and the high level perspectives around networking, but the, the real bottom end of it, which is, hey, they soldered in the wrong inductor sizes here or the wrong capacitor or, you know, this, this transistors in upside down and you look for that pattern on an oscilloscope. And once you find it, you know what to start looking for and you're tuning all training, all the techs on what to look for. It's a, they screen these boards down the line and figure out how to rework them all. Um, it was pretty cool. Wow. <laughs> it's yeah. been forever since I've touched an oscilloscope, by the way. <laughs> really? Let's see. I'm lucky. I, I'm, I, I actually, my, from a career perspective, I've been super blessed. I came up in an age where um, you were really more of a systems engineer. Like you came in and you wrote code, you did a, you know, analog stuff. You yeah, needed to be able to digital stuff, basics, like nothing was beyond what you were expected to do. Um, it's not quite that way anymore for, for kids coming out of school. Um, so I got to come up in that day and age. We were doing a lot of manufacturing in house. So you got to watch how all that unfolded. Um, and it was kind of the birthing of, of this era, right? You know, vampire taps reign supreme. Um, very few people today have ever seen one of those things, much less know what they are. <laughs> I've installed quite a few, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and it really stinks when somebody before you pl- install them not on the white lines. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing works right from there. <laughs> yeah. And, and actually, that's a really great point because very few people even know what the white line means or why it's there. <laughs> I don't. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Donald, there's this, there's this drug. It's called cocaine. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Now the white lines are uh, you're you're spaced out by quarter wavelength, so on the on the Ethernet media, so you you know get reflections. Right, exactly, because in any medium the signal actually runs in quarter and, and half wavelengths, and if you tap in the wrong place, you're at a half wavelength and you get no signal. Good luck with that. And if you tap at the wrong place, you end up with a reflection because you're not at the quarter wavelength point, and you end up with strange stuff. Yeah, it doesn't work right. Yeah. yeah, just a lot of noise. I mean, that tap might work, but the one after it or the one after that may be a complete disaster. Or you can tap in the wrong place and because it's reflecting, it can mess up the tap before it type yeah. of thing. So, yeah, it's it's really entertaining. <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nobody angrier than somebody that uh, has to go back and replace the fat yellow cable that you screwed the vampire tap into. <laughs> exactly right. I took the shield and touched it to the hot. <laughs> Particularly when it's hanging down the plenum of the 21st Air Force building and it's like you have to actually drop Repel. it. Yeah. Repel to the cable. <laughs> That's really bad. <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> so how'd you get into hardware networking as far as on the Linux side? You came in from the ASICs and things like that, but how did you get into that? Yeah, that so you know, first brush with Linux was the... Uh, I. Uh, I had the pleasure of working on a, a whole suite of pretty popular uh, NIC cards for 3Com, the, the Ethernet 3, the Ethernet 2, uh, 3C503, 3C509, oh. for those that remember those n numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you can love them, you can hate them, but hey, they moved the earth at the time. They did. They, did. <laughs> they worked. They worked good. Yeah, stick they were them in, Stick them in your old compact servers and your Dell desktops and everything was happy. Yeah, everything worked. And uh, anyways, you know, back then, you know, there's, you know, everybody was doing uh, Novell Netware and, and OS2 for, you know, for Microsoft and NetBuoy and all these strange, strange protocols, Apple Talk protocols on the wire. And, you know, then all of a sudden this Linux thing kind of came along and IP and everybody's like, ah, it's never going to take off, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then, you know, David Miller came along and, started, and wrote the device drivers for the 3C503 and that kind of became like actually interesting enough, one of the great big pulls of 3Com uh, into Linux networking because that device driver became so prolific um, and it went along with 3C509. Uh, so I got to watch that all unfold. Um, then I went, got off in the whole switching arena. And as you know, I mean, both of you guys come from long story networking backgrounds, this world around bridging and and routing wasn't really an OS thing. You know, Linux, you know, Microsoft, Novell, most of those were concerned with, you know, endpoint, you know, behaviors and things right. like routers and bridges were devices and worlds unto themselves. Um, and then as all of a sudden you start moving along and uh, the operating systems in general started uh, getting more and more inter-networking behaviors. And Linux specifically really moved forward with internet working behaviors. You know, you had bridges, you have, you know, really rich routing tables. You had not, not just a routing table, but selectable routing tables and the ability to put in IP rules to select tables or, you know, IP tables to select, you know, specific interfaces. We call them, AC, you know, ACLs if you're a network head, but, you know, Linux calls them IP tables. 
And all of a sudden that inner networking characteristics of Linux started moving itself along. Um, and you started comparing, at least I started comparing the, the behaviors and the malleability and even the, I'll call it the insight and thought that went into Linux networking against that of, you know, kind of traditional, you know, proprietary or, or kind of uh, fundamentally built networking OSs. And it became pretty clear that um, the, the differences were shrinking very quickly and the, the places where the fundamental OSs, you know, had, you know, we'll call them net benefits, um, those net benefits didn't matter quite as much anymore. It's going to sound really horrible, but, you know, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bash anybody by name, but if you look at some of the early day OSs that people have, you know, CCIEs or, you know, JCIEs on, um, you, those things were run on uh, 25 megahertz power PC processors, single threaded, single core, you know, so those, the people that wrote that code, hats off to them, way to kick ass and take names. You felt pain and delivered, you know, to the world. But nowadays, like the, the most straightforward network switch has got like a four or eight core multi-threaded x86 processor in there with a, a cache bigger than you had code for code space. Yep. You know, these things just shred. And so you can kind of take advantage of Moore's law on the protocol side of things to run, you know, run protocols, the fib tables, you know, keep your rib intact, your bridging tables intact. And, but now you're all of a sudden working in this world where there's a huge amount of energy because of both containers and virtual machines to drive behaviors um, and scale into Linux networking. So that's, that's kind of where I came at it. Um, my first intimate brush with it was when I was at Google. Um, we were you know, building what is a project called Fireholes, which became Google's internal networking. And we needed a routing information base. And lo and behold, the Linux, it was all IPv4. And lo and behold, the Linux kernel had it. And so they just used the routing information base from there. And they stuck routes in using this crazy perverted distributed OSPF protocol thingy that they invented themselves. And they took routes out of it using this little Python device driver to, and stuffed it into Broadcom Silicon to, you know, to make the whole thing work. You know, and hey, that's the way that's the way the shit's supposed to layer. I mean, like, this is the cake, right? You have protocols, stuff things into an intermediate layer. The intermediate layer is kind of your normalization. And then you have device drivers that take things out of the normalization layer, stick them into hardware or, or enact lower level functions for you. And you, you recognize, hey, wow, this is an operating system. It not only does this for networking, it does this for everything. And so, you know, it makes it a ton of sense. Um, when we started Cumulus Networks back in the beginning of 2010, I have to say that um, it was more of a wish than reality at the time as to like where everything was at. You know, we were, it was still a little sketchy and we were a little scared. You know, bridges were funky and IPv6 behavior was kind of sketchy at, at best. Uh, ECMP was really sketchy, uh, bonding drivers, you know, all that, all that stuff was kind of a mess. But like I said, the, the bones were there as well as the will. So you had kind of the will, the way and a, a foundation to start from. And so we started working with, you know, the community, the, you know, the silicon suppliers and all that and really moved it all along. So going back to Google, so was that Zebra at that time that was the rib or was it just no? 
No, it was just the, the kernel was the more like the fib, I would no, say. Just the, the kernel the, itself. Just the, yeah, just the, the kernel value. Yeah. yeah, I said rib, but you're right. It was more the fib. The, well, the, you know, I'm just asking because, yeah, because I was trying to understand because Zebra was around at that time, right? But it was yeah. actually a full routing suite. It was, it, this is pre Quagga days, right? This was just no, Zebra. No, it was Quagga, Quagga existed. Oh, oh, you're right. It was, yeah, I think you're right. I think it was just, just pre Quagga. Um, Zebra was around. The, I mean, the, that network was incredibly naive. It, don't get me wrong. It was naive when I talked to you as somebody who has a tremendous amount of experience in, in the routing domain. It did exactly what they needed to do. Um, it, and just to make sure we're super clear, it did, it did way better than what it replaced from a, a functionality perspective. So, you know, they were using commercial gear before, um, and, but they had really simple demands. They wanted to have racks, single attached servers. Each rack was a subnet. And they just wanted to be able to connect, interconnect those subnets in a, you know, within 10,000 nodes as fast as humanly possible. Um, and so, and they were doing that with commercial gear to start with. They wanted to both drive down the cost, increase the performance, and then, you know, kind of take the operational tool chain that they use for, you know, all of Google compute or, you know, the Google clusters at the time and fit networking into that, you know, back, back day when I showed up, uh, they had a bunch of Perl scripts, not even Python at that time. It was a whole bunch of Perl scripts <laughs> that ran all the networking stuff. You know, you want to set up a cluster, here's the Perl script that sets up the cluster. There's this one guy that knows how to use it. Um, if you want to <laughs> <laughs> know what's going on in the network, and, you know, here's the Perl script that goes off and pulls a bunch of stuff. And then we have a couple, you know, weird hacked together, uh, you know, tickle, expect, SNMP polar thingies that they did as well. Um, and so they wanted to fold that into the rest of the operational framework. So how do we move from, you may not know this, but how do we move from like 3C509s to Broadcom chipsets and 1RU boxes or even any size boxes with customized ASICs? I know that Tony Lee did the FPGAs in the SSE. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's probably one of the first hardware switching engines that was ever done. Then Cisco started spinning ASICs after that took a long time to convince people to do ASICs. So, I mean, we're going back to 96, 90, not, not even 96, I guess SSE is pre-96. So any thoughts about how, you know, that shift there took place? Because I think that's a yeah, major I can actually, uh, for, for better or for worse, you know, again, like old, old people have lots of skeletons. So uh, I am like in the middle of that skeleton. I was uh, part of a company called Grand Junction Networks. Um, and we were one of uh, the very early day Cisco acquisitions in the world of, of switching, uh, you know, L2, L3 switching. And, you know, in that era, there was ourselves, a company called Calpana, Crescendo, which was the very first one, and then Granite Systems. Um, uh, and so those four companies were the, the leaders in hardware, you know, ASIC-based switching. So that kind of brought the technology into Cisco. And we were starting, you know, as a company, we were building all our own ASICs in that space. And then uh, there was a point in time, probably, and this was this all happened in, you know, '93 type time frame, you know, between '93 and '95. And then there was a point in time in the late '90s, early 2000s, where uh, a, there were like 40 companies in Silicon Valley that had gotten funding to do, uh, you know, so switching silicon. And yep. their their claim to fame was, "Hey, we're going to sell to Cisco," and. You know, it was weird because none of the Cisco businesses had, you know, at the time had decided to buy buy any silicon from them and retained it. But that was what they were kind of trolling around the, the industry, telling everybody. Um, 
That still happens a lot today, by the way. That happens a ton. People do startups and they say, oh, so-and-so is going to buy us or they're going to buy our stuff. And most of the time, that company that they say is buying their stuff has never heard of them. Yeah, exactly. Well, in this particular case, um, uh, there was a, we, my business unit, or, you know, this same guy, David Schwartz, the guy that I was with 3Com, he came over and brought me into Grand Junction in Cisco. Um, he he was looking at it and kind of tried to making it a good business decision on behalf of, or I'll call it a localized business decision um, for Cisco. His thought was, hey, if one of these companies plays out and makes good silicon, we can take our internal silicon people and have them make better silicon on different sets of products. Um, so I got roped into doing due diligence on all 40 of these companies and Cisco eventually <laughs> convinced Broadcom to buy one called, it was called Maverick Semiconductor at the time. And, uh, it was funny because, you know, I went through due, due diligence and, you know, these guys were pretty good they, of the crew. They, they were the best. Um, they needed, we ended up helping a lot. We gave them a bunch of IP. We taught them how to test their stuff. We obviously, you know, we bought the Silicon and took it to market because we you knew that was the, the, the handshake deal we made with Broadcom. But in my conclusion of my write-up of this thing, I said, uh, at the time it was super prescient, especially given where I'm doing now, I said, uh, Merchant silicon suppliers exist to make manufacturing companies into networking companies. Cisco should never let this occur. Um, you know, because my my general thought process was that you know Cisco could dominate the silicon market. It would you know hold off commoditization as far so as that's possible. an interesting question. I mean, why 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 did Cisco decide to do that to handshake make a handshake deal with Broadcom rather than bring buying that company themselves and. Yeah, you. I mean, people do what they do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. just curious if you know. Yeah, because yeah. yeah you can only argue against it. I think that, you know a lot of people in in retrospect said, "Yeah, that was really a bad idea." Um, you know, because what happened is you can imagine, right? Broadcom bought Maverick. The first piece of silicon was okay. Actually, it wasn't okay. It was is really not that great. It had a lot of faults and flaws to it. But then they did another version, which improved upon it. Um, by the time I got to the Google, they were on, I think, the fourth or fifth generation of the silicon. Um, and they just keep making it better and better, increased buffer sizes and increased scale and, and features and functions inside of it. And, you know, nowadays you're at a point where, you know, a Mellanox, a Broadcom, you know, even a, like a Barefoot Networks is making silicon that is on par or, or better than Cisco Silicon. And when I say on par or better, you know, you can stack, you know, let's say you took all four of them, like a Cisco ASIC, a Broadcom, you know, Broadcom's latest, the Mellanox and, and Barefoot. Cisco may have one little thing in there that's better than the rest of them, some super secret sauce, um, but they have all a set of functionality that Cisco doesn't have as well, right? So, you know, when you stack them up, there's, you know, pluses and minuses to any one of them. If they were all immersed in silicon, you may or may not have chosen the Cisco one. It's not like discernibly better. Um, my personal opinion, as we as I as I hit that spot at Google, um, I realized that there's the industry had transformed from this world where the the black art of the, the network hardware was actually holding people back as, a, as opposed to enabling and bringing them forward. Um, you know, when I when I was at Cisco, I remember going on sales calls where you'd fly into some city and go around with the AE. And, you know, go meet some customers and, you know, take them out to drinks or lunch or, or whatever. And it was amazing to listen to them, you know, enthralled with knowing what the difference of 
this PFC card versus that PFC card and how many ports were here and which queuing theory worked on which line card of the Catalyst 6500. It's all this arcane little bits and pieces of knowledge that, that made them special, like, and how QoS worked differently here versus there and all that. And when you look at it systemically, that's all is just killing you, right? In today's business, the world is about deploy capacity as fast as possible. You know, don't get caught up in small, you know, artsy fartsy things. Just make it easy to understand and make it easy to move. That that actually, I think, is a lesson to the industry at large, right? I think we still have lots of engineers who are out there thinking that if I know how to deploy this box a certain way, and I know every thing about a particular vendor's line of equipment and hardware and ports and everything else, that I have a uniqueness about me that allows me to get jobs. And that may be true in a certain segment of the market, but I think that segment of the market is shrinking over time. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, the, I think the, the art, if you're a network engineer, the, especially if you're, when I look at networking architecture, network engineering, I, I'm starting to break them into two different domains. One of them's the, the kind of the internal or a cluster domain, and the other one's your, your WAN, your external domain. And they, they really have two different kind of perspectives or values that they bring to a business. Inside the cluster, I think that the number one value is, is it always up and working? And can you explain how it's supposed to work to the dumbest person on your team? Because if the dumbest person on your team knows how it's supposed to work, then people can under, you know, they know whether they try X, should it work or should it not work? If it's not working, they can diagnose their own problems and chase themselves down. As soon as you get something that's esoteric, it's really hard to transfer that knowledge and get everybody going. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So going back to the hardware side of this, so you were at Google, and you are basically taking advantage of the, the, the situation where Cisco decided to make a handshake with Broadcom and help them stand up a silicon company outside of Cisco, which in many ways probably helped Juniper stand up and helped Arista stand up and other companies stand up as well. You know, when I was at Cisco, we always said Cisco does a very good job of staffing every startup that's going <laughs> to you know, in the valley. <laughs> Well, it's funny, you know, when Andy Bethelstein and, and team started, you know, David Sheraton and Ken Duda and all that started uh, Arista, Andy has a pretty famous quote that I still keep around, which is, um, you know, in the modern day, there's, there's no reason to make a networking ASIC. Um, and the reason why I keep it around is because I, I have a little snipe at the bottom of it that said, and there's no reason to build a custom OS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, so if you go back to Linux-based networking, I mean, so, so Zebra comes in here someplace and then Quagga forks off of that. And how does that impact or enable this world of Linux-based networking from a hardware perspective? Because, again, you know, we went from 3C509s, and I remember building switches, believe it or not, out of 3C509s stacked into compact chassis yep. and running some operating system on them. Most of the time it was, it was something Unix, like it was SunOS or something like that. And then turning that into a switch or a router, or most often we would call it a gateway because right. it was doing a lot of other stuff as well as terminating TCP and doing other things. Doing that and all that other stuff, right? Yeah. 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 yeah so I think what happened, I mean, not, I think it's, it's clear what happened is people started using uh, uh, non-specific, non-networking specific hardware um, to do 
gateway type functions, typically, like you said, kind of routers. I mean, if, if you look at a Cisco 2600 or, you know, even the you know 4500, a lot of those were literally software routers with standard CPUs inside of them to start with, right. just running super specific and customized, you know, networking software or networking code. And then what happened is the general purpose OS has started adding more and more features and functions so that they could carry this forward. Um, you know, the, the a protocol suite like, you know, a Quagga or a Zebra um, was really kind of early in its time and that, you know, they, they kind of started the whole open source framework around putting together meaningful sets of protocols. And then you had, you know, there's a company called Viata, which I'm sure some of you guys know about along the way. They yeah. popped out and packaged up some of that stuff and tried to do it as a Cisco, you know, branch router replacement, kind of, again, furthering the art. Um, we got to the point when we started Cumulus, we said, hey, look, if we're going to you know, start this whole thing off, it seems to make sense. I mean, the only reason to start the company is because you have this uh, super vibrant and viable hardware supply chain that looks like it's never going to stop for a whole series of reasons. And you have uh, an operating system that is, you know, really kind of purposely set up to be what's important to people, especially in the cluster as you go forward, you know, specifically around things like virtual networking, container networking. A lot, a lot of people kind of forget about how important that was. And, you know, you're talking about routing, but it's actually that the addition of really good bridging functions in there that, that helped to move it along as well. Yeah, bridging. <laughs> that's, that's the shit that the ccas don't want to talk about <laughs> oh my goodness i was intact when we had the cisco rex yeah. oh my goodness that was a disaster so, <laughs> that so was what was the decision point between so like if you take the like uh the cisco's and the junipers they have their their they run on linux or they run bsd underneath right and they, no, but they not don't originally, use not iOS. Well, iOS I'm, yeah. Sure, I'm talking, you know, early 2000s and on, right? Right, right. And you get to XR and it goes to mock microkernel. Then sure, and you, so they're starting to use the general purpose operating system. I guess I should say they're starting to use the general purpose operating system, but they were not using the general purpose operating system for the RIB or the FIB. Right, right. exactly. So, so what was the decision for you, JR, to, to, to go to Linux? And what, what was the leap of faith there, I guess? Yeah, the as you pointed out, you know, the most of the networking companies were using you know, Linux or a general purpose operating system for memory management and scheduling and keeping, you know, a custom network stack. And you know, I think I mentioned this earlier, in the context of modern data center architecture, um, transparency and well-expected behaviors are the most important things that you can have. Um, it allows everybody to operate against a well-understood contract. And so if you're delivering, you know, infrastructure in that mode, you, you need things that are, are, don't have secrets. They don't have black boxes and they don't have arcane behaviors. And, you know, you looked at Linux at the time and did it have everything that was interesting and necessary? No, but it could. And it was done in a way that was super transparent and would be operationalized at a bunch of different levels in the system. Um, it, you know, I would say, I mean, you're actually, I think it's pretty fair to say that, you know, we started Cumulus maybe a little early. I mean, it, you know, from a, a company art perspective, we're, you know, everything's going really great and we may blow it all out. But when we first started trying to talk to people about this, they didn't quite get it. They were dumbfounded and, and, uh, and a bit baffled. I can't tell you how many times I'd walk into a, a meeting with a networking team and I'd ask them what they were deploying in their environments. And they'd talk about, you know, either, you know, 
blade blade compute chassis systems and or VMware or you know uh, KVM or, or other technologies that they were looking at. And I'd say, oh, so most of your networking isn't in your network. And they go, what do you mean? I'm like, well, who manages the switches in your blade servers? And they go, what switches in the blade servers? I'm like, are you guys using pass-through modules in your blade servers? They no. Who's managing the switches in your blade servers? They're like, they don't have them. I'm like, yeah, they do go look. And then some, some guy would get over to his computer or girl or whatever, they'd open their computer and they'd go look. They go, oh, wow. I guess the compute team's doing that. And I say, well, who's managing the virtual switch in your VMware deployment? And they're like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so what I'm, what I'm getting at is like, you know, you look at that and that, that friction and the kind of the siloing in the domains means that nobody really quite knows what's going on and how it's all supposed to work together. You contrast that with a, a, what I would call a modern deployment, you know, a, a Google, an Amazon, uh, a Facebook, a lot, you know, a lot of our customers, you know, you know I can't remember, I mean, JP and Morgan Chase, but like, we have a lot of really high scale customers um, and they've built these, you know, cluster teams where there's people responsible for compute and virtualization, containerization, storage and networking, and they all work together. They all share a lot of commonality and common languages. Um, they may have specializations, but they each, you know, kind of teach each other how the whole thing's supposed to come together. They keep it super simple and they, they build these little infrastructure components that, that are really easy to operate, super reliable, you know, cost effective from a, an acquisition CapEx perspective. And, and it's all because everything's transparent. So it's interesting you say that because when uh, Martin Cas- uh, Martin Cascado was on, he was saying that a real moment of enlightenment for him was realizing that there were more virtual edge ports in the world than physical by like orders of magnitude. Like there's so many virtual ports on the edge compared to what is in the physical world. And that if you really want to own networking, you've got to own the virtual edge, not the physical edge. I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, way of looking at it. Yeah, and I, mean, I, I think you can argue that. I mean, in, in fairness, I, I agree with Martin that there's a tremendous amount of you know, virtual networking ports, especially in the context of a data center. But, you know, if you look in the context of the world, you know, your cell phone is not a virtual endpoint and it's got, you know, there's way more cell phones than there are virtual switch ports in the world. Um, but anyways, well, that with that, yeah. in, in 5G, I wonder with network slicing, what that does to that situation as well. I don't know. It's hard to say, right? It yeah. may, those that your cell phone becomes multiple virtual endpoints, just like the processor Sit blade sitting in a data center at some point. I don't know. That's an interesting. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, we'll see how it all unfolds. But anyways, five G. Yeah. I mean, the, the real point of it though is that understanding you know, that level of transparency helps everybody. You know, put together data flows, yeah. security profiles. You know, system behaviors that that are well understood. Yeah, sure, and that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, because I think that. I think that's really one of the key points to networking today is to have the, you know, to understand more about the whole system than just the network and just the hardware, the appliances, as I call them, appliance-based networking. Right. Yeah, single vendor blobs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, whatever vendor it is, it's still an appliance. You're still buying it that way. And I, and I really, I really dislike in many ways the concept of, uh, the comparison of a network to a car, you know. Oh, right, yeah. Car, that's not really, <laughs> it's kind of strange to me when I sit down and think about it. It's not really a car. 
I actually been meaning to write an article for a long time, kind of spoofing and making fun of that concept, but just haven't gotten around to it. It's all well, stuck in. I didn't. I bet if you go back and look at some IBM and uh, deck sales decks from the what, late eighties or sorry, early eighties, late, you know, late seventies, you'd see the same thing when talking about mainframes, minis and, and PCs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So when we get to Google again, we get to Google, we're building this stuff. You've gone through building Cumulus. So what about the whole routing stack side of it? Because I know you say switching is a big part of it and spanning tree, which even radio says she wishes she didn't invent. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so how does, how does the routing stack come into this? And I mean, does Psy come in at some point? What convinces Broadcom to do something like Psy or their SDK in a more open way? So you asked a couple different questions there, um, all, all three of which were quite loaded. So I'll try and see if I can do it <laughs> one at a go. Um, you know, the, the routing stack, you know, and you know, I know, you know, Donald works on it, you know, as part of Cumulus and, you know, it's something we're super proud of is, you know, helping the community build a, a world-class routing stack, you know, um, you know, free range routing or FR routing is, is a fork of Quagga, which is itself was a fork of Zebra. And it was really about how to create a really quick moving community around the right set of features with, you know, high scale performance that doesn't stagnate and is development is done in a very open way. And I think that project's going incredibly well. You know, I, I kind of almost at least once a month cross my fingers and hope it continues to go really well. Um, only because these things have the opportunity of always not, you know, getting stagnated at some point, but thus far I, I haven't seen any signs of it. So I'm really excited there. Um, and I think if not, I think I'm, I'm a, a thousand percent sure if you went back and looked at um, the, you know, Quagga at the time when we started Cumulus and compared it to free range routing today, you're looking at a night and day difference in terms of features, functions, performance, reliability, scale, but like every dimension you look, it's all—it's way better. Um, and I would be interesting to see if you did that same chart over the span of a, an incumbent or a classical routing suite, if they were able to achieve that level of velocity. Um, you know, we, we get it because there's, you know, so many people are using the technology at high scale right now that if something's not working right, it comes back and gets pushed down, you know, into the open environment so quickly. Um, so, yeah, I think the stack matters a lot and having one that is, is a good open, not single vendor led community is, is phenomenally important. Um, so I, you know, congratulate that whole team for being successful to, to date. So, so continuing that just for a second, before we go back to the other questions, which I've already forgotten and maybe you haven't, but <laughs> I hit this all the time because I'm a maintainer on FR routing and I'm on TSC and blah, blah, blah. And one thing I often hear is, oh, an open source software stack like that just cannot compete with a commercial routing stack. And what's your answer to that? I mean, I'm just curious, like, how would you, what is your thinking in that area? And just putting it in the context of history, like, historically, it's so always been true that you, you have to. Am I allowed to cuss? Because <laughs> sure. you've got to be kidding me (laughs) (laughs) serious the up i mean the like if you look at a computer science is well understood how do you take entries and stick them in the list how do you sort lists how do you process lists how do you queue them how do you do multi-threading you know all these things are super well understood problems and realistically i've you know worked on some of the most prolific and biggest um 
and you know chest pounding operating systems known you know in my work at Cisco and there was some really crappy ass code in there and Cisco engineers you know there's the person at Cisco who who did you know you know OSPF and there's like 50 100 people that made OSPF actually work right at some level of scale so it's not like you know the incumbent operating systems woke up in the morning and figured it all out right in fact, most of them are like codifying their own bugs. You know, with this open technology, we have the opportunity of doing something, we'll call it the right way, you know, by chasing back to the RFC owners and figuring out what exactly is the correct implementation and then implementing it using modern computer science on modern computer architectures. And so, you know, whether FR routing compares to iOS XR today in some feature that you want to compare it against, I'm going to argue is immaterial because if we somebody cared about it in four months, it would beat it. It's not that hard. It's just computer science. Everybody knows how to fix these problems. It's, it's actually a bit more than that too. Cause one of the things, you know, when I, you know, JR did done closed source development, I've done closed source development and when in closed source development, when you have to get something done, you get it done and you hand it in and that's it. There is no ultimate review that you get in the open source. When you, give bad code to open source development, everyone looks at it and goes, what are you doing, dude? Stop it. So, 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 so there's a, a big difference in what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And what happens in, you know, I've seen it many times in closed source where you piece of code get written and you it's going out the door next week and it doesn't matter. It's going in the code base. It doesn't well, necessarily happen. Those, the truth right. the same. Yeah. Right, considering y'all and FR routing. I mean, we should have another entire show on history of FR routing, which we do plan, have planned, by the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's true. To a large degree, what you see as a, as a maintainer and, and on the TSC and stuff is that there's a lot more discussion, even over what things that might seem trivial to people, like the naming of a data structure. I know I'm going to say that, and Donald's going to be like... <laughs> yeah, it's been awful. You lost more hair, Donald. Just, I know it's all out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't expecting the level of argument over what we should call a data structure. Yeah, yeah. but it is what it is, right? It's yeah. an open source community. We're it's, two weeks in. You yeah. think it'd be easy? Yeah. So, what was the second question I asked you? Now I'm totally. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, the the second two questions were kind of tied to. Um, you know, you coupled the open source writing technology with something like SAI, and then you asked about SAI and Broadcom and SDKs and opening them yeah, up. Yeah, what, what kind of convinced them to do that? I know SDLKT came out very recently. Yeah, that so, seemed like a big splash, and it really didn't turn out to be a huge deal, it seems like. but So uh, there's a couple things, and, and I'm going to try and do it judiciously and draw a, a clean line through all, all this stuff. Uh, you know, when I, I look at technology like SAI, it stands for switch abstraction interface. And for the most part, it's a common device driver model. So it's the, the effect or the top, the top end of an SDK. It's something this, you know, it was invented by a company that wanted to have a normalized SDK that they could write code against for their own operating purposes. Correct, but not for graphics. Exactly, for networking. Now, the, the fundamental problem as exists with DirectX and graphics is until there's only one supplier that really matters in that technology, everybody is going to do some of the functions in a way that's general purpose um, and interchangeable, like add an IPv4 route to a, you know the, the default route table. And anything a little bit off to the side is 
often done through vendor extensions. And it's really hard to implement them and get them right, or even have an expectation that they're terminated and that they work correctly. Um, in addition, um, unless the company that's kind of specifying that stuff is actually writing that interposer layer and takes like true ownership of it, which they did it in the case of SAI, um, the performance is hideous. And there's nobody that really has the authority to improve the performance and make it really work well. Um, you contrast that with something like uh, an SDK, whether it's a you know, Broadcom, a, a Barefoot, a, a Novium, or a, a Mellanox. Um, you know, we as a company, you know, we have our own little device driver that we, we run inside with all of them. We have all the components you would expect in our device driver. There's a kind of a platform independent layer. There's a, a hardware abstraction layer and a platform dependent layer. And we have to do a lot of munging of stuff to get it all to work out correctly. Um, but we're able to dig down with each of our partners in their SDKs to either you know, provide them a performance patch or add something that didn't exist before that they just haven't written code for, you know, whatever it takes to close this whole thing off. Um, and it's because what we, we as Cumulus provide to our customers is a fully working system. SAI is just the SDK part. Mm -hmm. Understanding what that SDK does in the context of the real world is not on the table for everybody. And so it makes SAI literally just that simple layer. Um, now back to opening up SDKs, which is your final question to kind of finish that off. Um, I think that over time, you're going to start seeing Broadcom try to figure out how to make it open, but also consumable. Um, in, in fairness to them, they will actually will be unfair to them first and then we'll, be, then we'll be fair to them. In an unfair case, they're like, screw it, we're the market leader. We don't have to open anything, right? Um, and so they, they, have, they get to choose whether they open or not. Um, these, these devices are phenomenally complex. And so setting up the TDM scheduler for the memory management unit for a Trident 3 you know, shared memory array yeah, that's, there's like probably four people in the world that know how to program that. And like showing the registers to somebody is only a recipe for ultimate disaster. Whereas, you know, what they're trying to do is figure out how do we expose it to the world so that people can get use out of it without overwhelming ourselves with support calls from people hanging themselves. Interesting. So what do you think motivated them to start down this path in the first place? Was it the cumulus work? Was it the hyperscalers? Or, I mean... I, I, well, I would I would hope it was us. I, I would hope that we had some influence to to that. Um, you know, I've been pushing that team um, for for a really long time, just kind of pointing out to them: the more they open up their specs and documentation, the more embedded they get, and so they actually continue their market leadership. It's hard. You know, the original fear of the the previous you know kind of people that ran the company was. Uh, that by opening the technology up, it made it easier for their competitors to figure out what registers they needed to have. Um, and you know, at this point, I think they believe that they have enough silicon advantage over most of market that they can start to expose the technology in a way that's more and more consumable. Well, I would think that there's also some sense of if the more they open it, the more they're allowing people to compete with their primary customers. Meaning? Like, Cisco, Juniper, Arista, whoever, like the more you open it, the more you invite competitors to your primary customers, the people who are buying your chipsets. Yeah, well, I mean, that's an interesting world, right? Um, if you look at Cisco, they went through this arc in the last, you know, in the time that we did Cumulus where everything was custom. They brought Broadcom in for one product. 
Then they did a whole, pro, you know, a couple of product lines around Broadcom Silicon. Now they're trying to circle back away from Broadcom Silicon. Um, so you never quite know when those companies are going to be there or not be there, right? Um, right. You know, As look a at a customer for Broadcom. If you're exactly. from Broadcom's perspective, or or Mellanox or Barefoot or whoever. Yeah, exactly. You look at Arista. You know, they, you know, they've been a, a huge Broadcom customer for a long time, but then they did their ill-fated Cavium uh, sojourn. They're, they're working on they have a barefoot product now um and so you know they're not necessarily all in on broadcom either so you know it's you know and to some degree this is where the customers win right is because of that competition it forces everybody to be both transparent and offer up you know value for money every day i mean every one of us no matter how big we are fighting every day to earn our customers trust yeah it's interesting so I'm trying to think if there's a, so I, I was thinking that Google and other people might have been a lever as well in getting those APIs opened up to some degree because, you know, once people start saying, oh, Google's doing it, oh, LinkedIn's doing it, oh, Microsoft's doing it, I want to be able to do it too. So maybe that puts some pressure on the, on these uh, people to do something. It's always hard to say. I mean, you know, if you, if you look at the sum of Google, Amazon, Facebook, um, Microsoft, I think is still small potatoes in that world. But there's a couple other people that I can't say that are in that world where they're kind of buying silicon from Broadcom and, and running either um, their own OS or, you know, you know something like ours where they've got a source site license, but they're responsible for their own, you know, ongoing work. Uh, that set of people is a tremendous market force. And it would be worth it for Broadcom to hire a software team just to do an SDK for those people and make it as you know easy to use and, and open as possible without giving it open to the rest of the world. Ah, okay. Because because the market's narrow enough at this point. Yes, yeah, it's, it's narrow enough, and and the volumes are so high. I mean, I, I don't know on the switching side, and and this this these numbers are out of date. But when I when I was in Google, I left Google in two thousand and five. Um, the Intel rep. This is that was a long time ago. The Intel rep said that Google would have been the seventh largest server vendor in the world if they were, you know, taking their purchases and selling them to the market. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure those numbers have increased. Oh, I'm sure they have. Yeah. Cause I, I know Microsoft has a huge market now, you know, and servers and stuff and that's fine. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, uh, I think though that, that the hyperscalers tend to have an outweighed. Now, what's interesting to me is that people, realize how big hyperscalers are. I mean, these companies are, are millions and two millions and three millions of servers, but they don't realize that there are a lot of other companies that are in that second tier, 150, 200,000 servers, 300,000 servers, something in that range. And there's a lot of companies in that range. It's not one or two, it's a lot. Right. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because, um, you know, we as Cumulus get that quite a bit from our customer base, right? So, you know, someone will say, well, you know, I'm not as big as Google. And so like, right, you're not as big as Google, but just for grins, when you're running your infrastructure operations, you know, you've decided for whatever reason you need to build a private cloud. When you're running your infrastructure operations, who do you compare yourself to? You know, you're comparing yourself to like a really big bank. You compare yourself to Google, to Amazon, and they're like, oh, yeah, Google and Amazon, what, you know, we want to be able to operate our infrastructure at, the same, at roughly the same cost structure they operate theirs. I'm like, okay, great. Well, your economy of scale, even at like 20,000 servers, is you have, you have the buying power to do all of that. You don't need a million servers to pull it off. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you may drive the cost down the more volume you get, but then it becomes incremental at some point. 
It's well, actually, it becomes harder. I mean, think about that from Google's perspective. They want to blow out more servers. They've got to like, buy big pieces of concrete somewhere in the world that have hydroelectric power and cooling. And then they, they have to you know, put leases on those things for 100, you know, like 100 years and then buy them in a, so far in advance that they can then build a, plan to build a data center on it. If you're doing you know, 10,000 servers, you can get colo space almost anywhere. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, this is probably, they have the Disney effect, I'm sure. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but like at Disney yeah. World, when Disney went in to buy Disney World, they put it under a bunch of shell companies so that they could buy the stuff, buy the property without the property values going way up real fast. Because if everybody realized who was buying it, they would just go, well, they're going to buy it anyway. So I'm just going to set the price to whatever I want to. Right. At the end of it. Yeah. So I'm sure they run into that type of thing as well. It's like Amazon with, with HQ2 or headquarters two or whatever they're calling it. You know, anybody who's in that speculation game has <laughs> already driven the prices of that, that property up that to the point that, you know, it's beyond worth worrying about. Yeah. Right. So, so, so what's next? What's next yeah. in Linux networking and ASICs? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you look over the last few years, I think, you know, we had, uh, IPv4 routing was pretty solid when we started this whole thing off. IPC, IPv6 routing was there, but it was a little bit discontinuous. And I think that all got lined up really well. Um, bridging's gone through a lot of evolution with you know, both the bridge drivers themselves, as well as network virtualization with VXLAN and, and other you know, primitives that we get to use. Uh, the, one of the you know, virtual routing and forwarding or VRF got added to the kernel recently. And that's again, super, super powerful. Um, the, it's actually be interesting to watch uh, compute admins start figuring out how to use VRF to their advantage. Um, you know, as you start coming in and looking at it in the context of an open stack or, a, uh, or any other of these deployments, you get kind of back of the house networking in front of the house networking. Um, the next big piece that I think happens is the uh, segment routing in MPLS, um, figuring out how you leverage those pieces, both um, on the host as well as from an internetworking perspective to give the right kind of services. And I'm super precise when I say the right kind of services. It's kind of easy to say, hey, I want to use MPLS everywhere, um, which you know we have customers that are doing that. But I think you can use MPLS some places and get tremendous amount of benefit out of it. Particularly with SR. I think segment routing changes the entire game in the MPLS yeah, world. Absolutely. Honestly. I mean it's it's don't don't tell Yakov I said this, but I have to kind of <laughs> I mean, it's actually kind of what MPLS should have been in the first place. Right. And in many ways, I think that that was, MPLS was, was complex when it was first designed. I mean, tag switching, of course, it was based off of ATM. So, I mean, this whole, they were trying to use the ATM frame relay paradigm. And when you're doing that, it's very hard to think outside the box quite often and think of another way of doing it. It takes years of experience with something to think about how to do it in a different way. Yeah, I mean, you you were there. You remember the days when uh, you know you go to an IETF meeting, and like three quarters of the people there were all from you know Bell Labs or you know one of the other telcos, and they were it was all ATM think back then, all ATM yeah. think, and it was like peeling the onion you know over and over again. Now those people are all gone, and so now people are saying, hey, there's this primitive called a tag. What do we do with it? Yeah, right. Exactly. What else can we do with it? What we have now already done with it, which is kind of cool, right? Right. There's a lot, a lot more interesting stuff going on. 
So, Donald, do you want to ask your traditional question? Well, I was going to ask it a little subtly different. So, because so, I'm not actually sure where to, to ask that question. I like a fire your ass. No. <laughs> so, 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 what what have we as an industry or Linux done wrong from a networking perspective? And what would you do differently now? Like if like if you could just have a magic wand, ding, and make it different. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. I think you stumped him, Donald. Hi. No, I'm just trying to be thoughtful, that's all. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's... Uh, actually, okay, there's probably a couple of things. And there's small things to start with, but I think that it makes sense as, as I start talking about it. Um, being able to make... Uh, the completely separate IPv4 from the kernel and make it so that your choice of IP layers, a, a kernel time, you know, loadable module or a compile time module, I think would have been, would be really good and hopefully will happen over time. Um, you know, I, I think you're going to see systems, you know, becoming single stack of uh, IPv6. And the fact that IPv IPv4 is required in the kernel, it's always on, um, is slightly problematic. Um, it, it, it doesn't allow clean separation of, of each of those two things. Um, so, so like I said, super, super, super small stuff. Um, that, that I think will be good to get fixed. So more you know, generally just modularizing things differently could have done better from the ground up when building the initial networking stuff inside the kernel. Yeah, and, and in fairness, you know, they were, you know, trying to get stuff done that day. And one of the great things about Linux is, you know, somebody will take this to heart one day and they'll figure it out and they'll knock it off and everybody will go, Jesus, thank you. Um, yeah, right. You know, and it'll be, I guess this will be a lot like VRF was, right, where people worked on it for, you know, a decade and never got anywhere because they were taking a namespaces approach to it. And then somebody came up with a totally different way of thinking about it. It made, like, perfect sense. And then all of a sudden, bingo, it's done. Um the, you know, I think the next big thing to watch is the, the work around switch dev and, and kind of getting native support for switching devices into the kernel um, and making that move along. I, I actually think that project and this process is moving along at about the right rate. I don't think it could move much faster than it, than it is right now, um, but it's going to be really awesome to watch that continue to continue to unfold. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we are at 52 minutes, so I think we're cool. Build up our time. Awesome. Awesome. So <laughs> I have a little friend here oh. that, uh, this is Sherry. <laughs> Sherry, say hi to everybody. No, maybe not. Patiently <laughs> sitting on my lap all day, or at least this whole, this whole call. And now she's like, guys, I want to go play. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks, Sherry, for putting up with us. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Russ. Thanks, man. Thanks, Thanks for coming on, JR. Oh, JR, do you blog any place other than Cumulus? I think you do write on Cumulus every now and again, right? Yeah, just Cumulus. That's about just it. Cumulus. Okay. Twitter, yeah. anything like that? Uh, just Cumulus. Just Cumulus. Okay. Yeah, I'm a company man. Okay. And Donald, <laughs> we know you're only on Cumulus every now and again. And Twitter at me, not you, Sharp. <laughs> Look at that. I love that one. <laughs> and you can find me at Roll11.tech and Routing Geek on Twitter and Network Collective among other places. So cool. Well, thanks again, JR. And uh, we'll have you back on the show to talk about some other stuff. I think we really need to do a history of FR routing 
Um, I've been talking to Alistair about it. We'll try to get that set up too. It sounds like a plan. Thanks a lot for having me again. Thanks. Take care, guys. Thanks for coming on.